Okay, Numbers chapter 27 as we continue in our study through the book of Numbers. We are right on the border of the promised land. The next generation now is about to enter in and experience the promises of God. And Israel is sort of toward the end of the book of Numbers and then going into, of course, as we'll see, the book of Deuteronomy, sort of on the uh, horizon of a new day. Uh, there's about to be a transition. We'll see in our first few verses this evening a transition of leadership uh, that's beginning to come to pass as God's beginning to uh, orchestrate that new day on the horizon as well as the new generation, the younger generation who has risen up now uh, and will be the ones to experience and embrace the promised land even though their parents had forfeited that opportunity God intended for them originally. Uh, and uh, we see that notice as we begin here chapter 27 continuing onward uh, where we left off last week there in verse 12 as God now speaks to Moses and informs him uh, what the future holds saying to him chapter 27 verse 12 it says the Lord said to Moses go up into this Mount Abarim again Mount Abarim is a reference to a range of mountains ultimately he would go to the area of Pisgah or Nebo where he ultimately would uh, have the cessation or the end of his life we see in other accounts of scripture but into that range God now calls him up uh, and he says go up into that land he says and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. So God wants him to go up and to preview, to look from that mountain range there over the land where he could see the Canaan land, the land of Israel. Notice again, God being the owner of the land. More than that, God being the creator of the heavens and the earth. Again, emphasizes, we see this repeatedly throughout the word of God, that God's divine decree was that that land was given to a specific chosen group of people, the people of Israel, to the Jews. And here God again emphasizes this. Moses, he says, go up, preview the land which I have given to the children of Israel. The reason, of course, verse 13, he says, and when you have seen it, you also, after he would preview the land, from the other side, he says, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered for in the wilderness of Zin during the strife of the congregation. He says, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. And these are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So God reminds Moses here of the reason why. He, as we talked about before in our prior studies, when we saw that account of Moses' error there at Meribah to misrepresent the Lord, the reason why he would not be able to take the children of Israel into the land, specifically that was a part of the discipline that came because of his misrepresentation of God. And again, we talked at that point there at length how important it is to God. Uh, that we do represent him correctly and how Moses had done such a wonderful job and yet the seriousness of his responsibility as a leader. Again, the Bible says to whom much is given, more will be required. And so because of that, Moses misrepresenting the Lord and we talked about, remember there, uh, more than that, that he totally, if you would, uh, 
just mangled and, and polluted a beautiful type of Christ that God was intending to represent in that moment when, remember, God told him to speak to the rock on that occasion and Moses in anger struck the rock because he lost control in that very moment. And again, God was trying to portray a type of Christ through this rock. It was smitten once but then after that, it only need to be spoken to to experience the water to come forth. A picture of Jesus, how Jesus only needed to suffer and die once and once alone for the sins of the world. And now all we need to do is speak to Christ in faith to experience the living waters of God's spirit. And of course, when Moses struck that rock rather than speaking to it, uh, God took a very severe uh, consequence and attached it to that, that he, his life aspiration would now no longer be able to take them into the promised land. So God now is informing him here in this time historically that his death is on the horizon. He says, Moses, go up into the mountain. Look at the land. When you've seen it, he says, verse 13, then you are going to be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was already gathered. And of course, God's speaking in these terms of the death of Moses at this point, even as Aaron has died. And interesting, isn't it, that the Bible speaks of death in that way? I think it's beautiful language that God, speaking of Moses' death, says, Moses, you're about to be gathered to your people. I think it's a great reminder there in the scriptures, we look at the language God uses, that death is not a cessation of a person's existence. Death is a transition of a person's existence into the eternal dimension. Again, every one of us by nature are eternal beings. Uh, where we spend our eternity is the thing that's most critical. Uh, this life that we have, we are eternal beings. God says created Adam and breathed into him the breath of life. And this physical body, it has a purpose, it has a, a time period, and it has an expiration date. And ultimately, when this thing expires, this physical body God has given to us to experience this present world, to see and to taste and to touch and to hear and to embrace people, when this physical body no longer serves its purpose, then this physical body dies. But that's not the cessation of the existence because the Bible tells us that when this, the body dies, the spirit then vacates the body and, of course, then enters into the next dimension. And here it's interesting that as God speaks to Moses, he says, Moses, you're going to die. And the way he describes it, you're going to be gathered to your people, to Aaron and to other believers who have gone on before you. You're going to be now gathered together with them, reunited with them, joined together with them. And I think it's just an important reminder uh, at this point, this is how God describes Moses' death. And to realize for all of us, listen, one day we're going to be gathered to a group of people. And that is either going to be gathered with a group of people in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and reunited perhaps with other believers who have died and gone on before us, or we are going to be gathered to another group of people in a place the Bible refers to as the lake of fire where Satan himself and the Antichrist and others are cast into a place of eternal torment. The important thing is where you stand with Jesus Christ because for the believer, the Bible assures to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And tonight it's important to realize one day you are going to be gathered to a group of people. Your eternal destiny hinges upon one thing, what you do with Jesus Christ. 
It's not your good works. It's not your perception of what's right and wrong. It is the one way that God has given, which is through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is emphatically clear. Jesus couldn't have made it clearer and more narrow when he said, I am the way. He didn't say, I am a way. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father in heaven except through me. So very important this evening. I hope every one of us in this room has resolved that, or if not, that you do resolve that because uh, death is an appointment that you have to keep, but it's an appointment that nobody knows the day or the hour of. Uh, it comes upon you at an hour that you don't expect. So Moses now hears that he is going to be dying. In a sense, God's letting him know this is on the horizon, which makes then the next few verses all the more beautiful. Verse 15, Moses, knowing that he's going to look at the land and soon be dying, notice, rather than regress into self-pity, oh, woe is me, I'm going to die, I didn't want to die yet, and God, can we talk about this promised land thing again? Maybe could I still go in? Instead, look, Moses is completely unfocused on himself, and look what he does. He begins to pray, verse 16, he says, okay, well, if my time is up, Lord, if I have fulfilled my purpose, and listen, the reason a Christian dies is because their time is up. That's why some people die earlier, why some people, when God's done using you for the intended purpose he has for you, that's when you'll die. Not a day before and not a day later. So Moses realizes, okay, my time is up, but look what his concern is, verse 16. He says, then let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So notice, what is Moses' concern here? Upon hearing his time on earth is soon to be done, his foremost and primary concern is what? The welfare of other people. It's not himself. He's not focused on himself. And I think this is a beautiful picture because... It is a wonderful illustration, really, of the mark of a true leader. The mark of a true leader is someone whose genuine and chief interest is making sure that other people have and receive what is best for them. You know, my heart grieves me when people represent themselves as a leader or when people have the role of a leader and all the more in the body of Christ, a pastor, a shepherd, someone who claims to be a leader and yet you watch the way they act or behave or the decisions they make or how they conduct themselves and you begin to realize this is all about what's best for you. Listen, a shepherd cares about what's best for the sheep. One of the marks of a true shepherd is if someone is genuinely a shepherd, then they will always make decisions in regards to what is best for the sheep, what is best for the flock. And if that means something difficult for me, if that even means in some way removing myself because that's what's best for the flock, that's the heart of a true shepherd. Jesus, speaking of himself as the good shepherd, speaking of how someone who's not a true shepherd, a hireling, someone who's just hired, and, and he says the hireling and, and the thief, they just come to rob, kill, and destroy. In other words, it's simply about what they can get. And Moses here, this beautiful picture of a true leader, he hears his time is up. He's not thinking about himself. Instantly, his mind goes to, what about the people, God? They're, they're like sheep, God, and they need someone to help them. So he begins to plead and pray right away. Lord, he says, set a man over the congregation 
who can go out before them and in before them like a shepherd going before them, leading them, watching over them, providing leadership. He says, verse 17, so that they may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Again, the Bible uses this a metaphorical speech to describe us as God's people that that's what we're like we're like sheep and sheep don't do well without a shepherd sheep can tend to be easily scattered and spooked and they can get themselves into trouble and and sheep without a shepherd are very vulnerable and they tend to get themselves into problematic situations they need that leadership and care and guidance of a shepherd and so Moses recognizing this he begins to pray Lord you need to appoint someone else Lord please give them someone that's got a shepherd's heart that can lead them so that they won't be like sheep without a shepherd and just like the heart of Jesus, Moses here pictures so beautifully. In Matthew chapter 9, we read this of Jesus. It says that when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like a sheep having no shepherd. So Moses here praying that God would appoint a leader, a shepherd in his place as he would now be passing off the scene. In verse 18, the Lord then speaks to Moses in response to his prayer and says to him, Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man, notice, in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. And set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. In other words, the succession of leadership would now go to Joshua who would take them into the land. This was God's selection. And again, important to see there, take notice that the need for a new leader came on the horizon and there's nothing we see in scripture, both Old or New Testament of, okay, well then let's have an election like a political process. So, you know, who would like to run for the election and you can promote yourself and we'll set up some debates and you can get some media advertisement and put out your resumes and what you can do and what you can't do and your credentials. The Bible knows nothing of that from a spiritual sense. What we see in Scripture regarding God's appointment of leadership and roles and responsibilities is not election, but God's selection. It is divine selection where God says, this is whom I have chosen. This is whom I've selected. They may not be the most educated person. They may not be the most talented person. They may not be the most experienced person. They may, quite honestly, not look like that they have what a lot of others do. So often we see that case. The Bible says in Corinthians, God you know, chooses the weak things and the foolish things to confound the wise. We look how God, after giving Saul to the people, which is what they wanted, someone like Saul, who was this king who had all the charisma and all the strength and could no doubt speak smoothly and wow everybody. And, and then God raises up afterwards David, the Bible says, who was just a young man, but he was a young man who had a heart after the Lord and a young man who God used to have a shepherd king attitude who helped the people greatly and ultimately here God is making the selection saying Moses I've heard your prayer and he says I've selected Joshua to be inaugurated to succeed you in leadership verse 20 he says to him and you shall give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. So again, the idea, Moses, I want you to gradually, and we'll see this is a process, not till the end of Deuteronomy will 
Moses actually die and Joshua completely take the reins, it would now from this point be a gradual process, which is a, a wise thing. There's a gradual transition of leadership that happens at this point, which I think is how it should always be in a healthy way if there needs to be a transition of leadership. And he says, you begin to give him some of your authority, allow the people to experience, to recognize that this is God's selection, that they would cooperate with that, that they may become, it says, verse 20, obedient. The idea is that they would become submissive to his authority, recognizing that he's God's selection and who was appointed. And he shall stand, verse 21, before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. And at his word, they shall go out. And at his word, they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So notice one difference between Joshua's leadership and Moses' leadership God sort of makes a transition here. Moses, remember, it says God would speak to him face to face. And, and Moses had no one else involved in the mediation process. He would go and spend time in God's presence and he would, it said, the Bible says God would speak to him face to face like a friend speaks to another friend. With Joshua, the Bible tells us God's instituting something new. Joshua would inquire of the Lord through the high priest through Eliezer the priest. And so God makes somewhat of a, a transition here in how things would take place as, as Joshua would now succeed Moses. And verse 22 says, Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, he set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and he laid hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So before we move on, just take note of a few things as we look at this and Joshua now being the next leader. And again, as I said, the leader that God selects and appoints. And I think we can draw a few lessons of what kind of a man or take notice who God chose as a leader to succeed Moses. Again, to some extent in every one of our lives, there should be an interest and a desire to want to be a good leader, a good example, whether it's in your job place, whether it's as a man being a leader in your home or as a parent being a leader with your children or being a leader in some capacity, large or uh, small in the body of Christ, that, that we would all desire to provide leadership. Let's be very candid our world is starving for good leadership our lord world is so deficient of good and i want you to notice when god selected this leader joshua notice what things we can take note of about joshua first of all one thing we take note of in verse 18 who god chose as a leader is that joshua was a spirit-filled man doesn't say he was the most intelligent man among the bunch, that he was the most educated or even the most experienced. But one thing we do see is that God says, verse 18, a man in whom is the spirit. The idea is a man who is under the influence of the spirit, that the spirit of God was ruling in his heart and life. He was a man who was sensitive to the spirit of God, that he listened to the spirit, that he was under the influence in a very personal way of the spirit of God in his life. And again, I can't tell you, there is no greater qualification, no matter what way you're providing leadership, than that right there. You may not be the sharpest knife in the box. You may not be the most experienced, educated, whatever. But if you are a spirit-filled man or woman and listen to the Lord, 
and follow God's leading. And you're not a self-willed person or someone who's led by emotions, but that you follow the impulses and the direction of the Spirit of God. You wait upon the Lord. You seek the Lord. And even you have the courage when it's hard to obey the Spirit of God rather than to obey even the impulses and the pressures of other people. That's key. That's critical. And here we see this with Joshua. We see it as well with other leaders throughout the Scripture. Another thing we notice about Joshua we can think of is that he also, was he not a man of faith? Remember Joshua and Caleb, they were the two spies. Remember when they went into the promised land years ago, all the other spies, what, were fearful, they were doubtful, and it was Joshua and Caleb who had a spirit of faith that said, hey, yes, there's obstacles and yes, there are challenges, but our God can do this. And we need to believe God for what he's told us to do. And we need to be obedient in faith and trust the Lord and step into this. And, and Joshua and Caleb were these two men who had a spirit of faith. And I think that kind of faith is an important thing as we seek to provide leadership for the Lord and for his people. Because in any form of leadership, guess what? There are times when you're going to have to trust the Lord. And if you don't trust the Lord, then you're going to lean on your own flesh or you're going to try and manipulate things in your own strength and ingenuity and ideas uh, and, and to be able to say, look, we need to trust the Lord. We need to trust the Lord and believe what He's able to do and wait upon Him or rely upon Him rather than trying to do other things. Another thing we can think of about Joshua is this, is that he had been a man who was already under authority before he was given authority. We read about Joshua throughout the Old Testament up to this point that he was Moses' assistant. That's what he did. Even at this point, it says there in verse 18, to Joshua who was with you. Wherever Moses was, we always see Joshua was with him. He's with Moses when he would go up the mountain, when Moses would spend time with the Lord. He's with Moses around the tabernacle. He's someone who seems to always be together with Moses. He's there, the Bible even calls him, an assistant of Moses. That very term is given to him. So he is a man who's already been serving under authority together with Moses, helping out in a faithful way, tending sort of as Moses' right-hand man. And again... It's been said before, and it's very true. You really cannot be someone who operates well with authority until you have learned how to serve under authority. No one tends to ever be a very good leader unless they first learn to prove that they're a very good follower, that they know how to function under authority, they appreciate it, they value it, they know how to complement that and just be faithful with the small spheres of responsibility and here Joshua was a man who was like that and it's interesting that this is a part of what no doubt God saw in him as well. And the last thing I'd say about Joshua is this, is he was someone who was actively engaged in the life of the congregation. He had already been a part of that congregation there. He was willing to fight battles. We've watched him do that already. He was a man of courage and he was a man who apparently was capable to lead because Moses said, God, give them someone who can lead. Uh, and, and apparently God saw this capacity within him. He was already engaged and involved. And the Lord says, this is the right individual. He knows the people. The people know him. And God now puts him in that place where he would succeed Moses. So now we see God giving this instruction 
for Moses to bring Joshua before the people. And it says Moses took him before the congregation. They laid hands on him. And again, the idea there was to publicly recognize him as God's choice before the congregation so that they would respect him and that they would recognize, hey, this is God's selection. And so we should embrace that and we should cooperate that. And I think that's an important thing. We see Old and New Testament, this idea of laying on of hands and public recognition. Uh, yet the Bible says to us, don't lay hands on anyone too hastily to wait uh, because we again it was not Moses laying his hand on Joshua that conferred to him the authority or the anointing of God all all Joshua was doing was being in a sense confirmed publicly Moses was just ratifying this is what God's decided this is God's choice and we're just identifying it outwardly and this is what Moses is doing at this point as God leads him to recognize Joshua to prepare the people for this transition. So at this juncture now, again, very interesting, God's bringing the close of a prior era, a prior season, and under Joshua, a new day was on the horizon. Keep this in mind as you think about this transition from Moses to Joshua. Joshua will now take them into the land. We've talked about this before, but I can't restate it. Even amidst Moses' failure, as we just talked about, the reason he's not taking the people into the land is because he failed. But yet, despite that, even though Moses failed and despite his failure, God still orchestrates what? A powerful illustration of something so beautiful of how Moses, who represents the law, could not take the people into the promised land or the promised life of God. But Joshua, who represents Jesus Christ, Yeshua, our Savior, is the one who takes the people into the promised life, the life of the Spirit. And just a reminder how in our lives, you know, the, the law or keeping rules or laws cannot take us into the promised life of the Spirit. Jesus, living for Him, submitting to Him, is the one who brings us into the promised life of the Spirit. So chapter 28 and 29, we'll see as we begin to transition now and these chapters kind of fit together. We may not obviously cover all of them this evening, but chapters 28 and 29 basically now are God's instructions for the next generation regarding worship. And we need to keep in mind, a lot of what we see here is reiteration from things we've studied back in Leviticus chapter 23. The feasts and festival days were described there when God originally gave them. But again, as we said before, this is the next generation. Remember, the older generation has died off. This is the younger generation now. And this younger generation now needs to be instructed how God is to be worshipped. And let me just say this. That's a good principle because every generation needs to be adequately instructed and taught this is how you worship God. This is how you live for God. This is how you approach God. And I think it is so critical that we realize, it's been said many times before with great truth, that the church is one generation away from extinction. If we fail to invest in and to instruct the next generation how to live for God and serve God and worship God, one generation, that's all it takes for them to derail everything. And so God says now, look, they may have heard some of these things from their parents as they were growing up, but they're the ones now who are taking the baton and going to go in to the promised land. So they now, as the young generation, needed to be instructed regarding these same things of worship that God had already told the people many years prior. 
So chapter 28 verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering and my food for my offerings made by fire is a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. So God's going to speak to them now about the worship life of the people. And we'll see that God will describe how there was to be worship on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and then even on a yearly basis with the annual feasts and festivals we'll see described here in these chapters. And we won't read uh, every verse of each one. There's some details in here, things we've discussed before, and a lot of it certainly is kind of cumbersome to read through. We'll kind of just summarize some of what's being described here. But notice from verse 1, one of the things that's very clear as God begins to speak about worship, it's not as if God there was having a, a, a moment of struggle communication do you notice verse 2 the constant repetition my my me me my my me me do you see that there in verse 2 I have it circled in my Bible my offering my food for my offerings that you offer as a sweet aroma to me you shall be careful to offer to me I think God is trying to emphasize look this is the basis of worship it's not just religious routines it's not just practices and you know programs that you go through. And it, but God says, no, there, there's something that's very personal. It's something that is to be done unto me. I want you to notice here that the terms of worship weren't determined by the people. They were determined by God. God has the divine prerogative to say, this is how I will be approached because I'm God. This is how I will worship. So God prescribes now to them the way in which he was to be worshipped. And notice that the centrality of worship is about the person of God. It's about God himself. Listen, if they went through all the routines and the rituals, as many people do and they call it worship, if they went through all the routines and rituals and observances and they missed the person behind the process, then God says, you've missed the whole point. This is about me. And even as Christians, let's be honest, sometimes we can become so familiar with the processes of our spiritual life and nothing wrong with good disciplines that we fail to realize. Look, remember what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus? He says, look, you're doing all these great things. But I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. And again, here God, I think, is trying to emphasize what is one of the most fundamental things about worship. It's to be God-centered. It's about God. It's about God himself and the individual himself behind why we do what we do, that we love him, that we're approaching him. We want to bring a sweet aroma that's pleasing to him. And God says that they would offer these things to me, notice, at their appointed times. So again, they couldn't just come how they wanted and when they wanted. There was a prescribed way. These were scheduled occasions God's going to give to them now, in these verses at least, of how civilly, nationally as a people, they were to recognize God, which really would be the strength or the downfall of their nation, depending upon how well they did or did not do these things we see historically. Verse 3, he first says, And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs in the first year without a blemish. So again, we talked about this before, how in the sacrifices they were to be unblemished, no defects, because these sacrifices were types and pictures of Jesus, who has no blemish, 
who has no inherent sin, nor did Jesus commit any sin. There was no blemish in his life as there's lots of blemishes in our lives. That's what made him the perfect sacrifice that he could die in your place because his life was sinless and unblemished so he could be the perfect substitute. And so these animals, as they would bring them, they were types and pictures foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, animals without blemish. So they were to bring these male lambs without blemish, verse 3, notice, day by day as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. So notice, first of all, God describes here there was to be a daily component to their worship. There was to be an offering in the morning, and then there was again to be another offering in the evening. And God says this was to be a regular thing. Day by day, there was to be daily morning and evening worship. So at the start of each day, they acknowledged God with a sacrifice. And at the conclusion of each day, they closed out the day acknowledging God with a sacrifice. Noticing and recognizing God, we commit this day to you. We start it with you. Thank you, God, that because of what you have done for us, we can have relationship with you. And as they closed out the day, much like you and I, no doubt as that sacrifice was being offered, they were saying, Lord, thank you. Despite how many times I've messed up all day long already. <laughs> that there's a sacrifice for sin, that there's forgiveness and atonement and they could close out their day and they could put their head down on a pillow at night as they watch that sacrifice being lifted to the Lord, realizing, oh Lord, thank you, that with a clean conscience, I can go to bed at night and I don't have to toss and turn and feel filled with guilt and misery like everyone else who refuses to acknowledge your sacrifice, Lord, I can close this day no matter how bad it is or what problems are going on in my life. Even if they're coming to foreclose on my tent here in the wilderness. Because, Lord, it's well with my soul. And that sacrifice, morning and evening. Interesting, uh, Spurgeon did a devotional years ago called Morning and Evening. Kind of drawing from this idea here. Uh, you know, a scripture and some devotional thoughts in the morning. And then he writes a second one for the evening for each day. Boy, I think this is just a great personal principle. You know, morning and evening. Start the day with the Lord. Acknowledge Him. Close your day with the Lord. Worshiping the Lord on a daily basis. And then verse... 5 down through verse 8 describes some of the other things that were mixed into that, the grain offerings and the oil and the drink offerings and so forth as a part of that. So a daily portion of their worship, verse 9 now describes a weekly time of worship as well. It says, and on the Sabbath day, two lambs, verse 9, in their first year without blemish again, and two tenths of an ephah of fine flowers, a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath. Again, Sabbath was Saturday, the last day of their week, of their calendar week. Besides, notice, the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. So every day, morning and evening, there were sacrifices made. But then notice, on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, they were then to do double that. They were to still offer the typical morning and evening sacrifice, but they also were on the Sabbath day 
to offer sacrifice as well. And we've talked much at length about the Sabbath before. This day that God gave as a gift to man where they would cease from their labors. It was a day of rest that God gave to the people of Israel, particularly as a covenant with them as the chosen people of uh, his select nation. But the Sabbath day was a gift for man. It was a time that they could rest and cease from their labors as God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh day in that same pattern God knows that mankind needs rejuvenation uh, that man needs to be able to rest and recuperate and the Sabbath day became a time of weekly worship when they would cease from their regular activities and the rat race of the day-to-day -day affairs and how they would go hard all week long and they would just rest and recuperate and they could focus solely upon God and they could reflect upon the things that mattered it was a day of worship and a day of physical recuperation. And of course it pictured that ceasing from one's labors and being at rest. Of course it pictured Christ. Who the Bible says Hebrews 4 is our Sabbath. That's why Jesus said come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. And he goes on to say rest for your soul. Because it's in Jesus when we realize the finished work of Jesus Christ. That spiritually we cease from all of our labors to try and get right with God. Which is exhausting. And until you come to an understanding that the work of Jesus is the only acceptable work and is the perfect, sufficient work, you'll never be at rest. You'll be in constant turmoil within your heart and your mind because you'll keep saying, I've got to do something to earn God's good graces. Or some Christians even, they get saved by the grace of God and they're so ecstatic and then right away, a week later, they're looking for some law to put themselves back under again. And they're living a restless Christian life. And Jesus said, listen, I am your rest. I'm your Sabbath. You can rest. I have finished the work. It's done. It's finished. And by faith alone, we rest in our soul because we know what Jesus has done for us. And the Sabbath picture, that beautiful reality, that type of Christ. So daily they worship. Weekly they worshiped. Again, I think that's a good pattern to set aside an appointed time once a week, twice a week to slow down, to rest, to have appointed times of worship, to say, hey, that's the day that I need to worship the Lord on. Not because I have to, but, but that's an important day. It's in a part of my appointments. I'm going to schedule it into my life. Verse 11, notice, daily, weekly. Now look also, monthly, at the beginnings of your months. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs of the first year without blemish, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flowers, the grain offering mixed with oil for each bull. And then from there again down to verse 15, again, it just describes the details of this concoction of the grain offering with the drink offerings mixed together with the sacrifice that was put before the Lord on verse 11 says, the beginning of each month. So on a monthly basis, and again, keep in mind, the nation of Israel, they operated on a lunar calendar rather than a solar calendar. So on a monthly basis, this is where the idea of the new moons and so forth comes to pass. God says the beginning of each month, they were also together with the daily and weekly sacrifices. They also the beginning of a month were to mark the beginning of a month with a burnt offering a consecration offering, the burnt offering member was, a, I'm dedicating, I'm consecrating everything over to you. And the burnt offering, remember, the entire animal was just consumed in the fire on the altar. And it was a picture. God, this is what I want. I want my whole life. I don't want one part of it. I want you to consume the whole thing. Just like this whole animal, the whole thing was just consumed in the fire. God, 
I want my entire life consecrated over to you. I don't want part of it back. I don't want one portion of it. And I think this is pretty awesome. You think, well, what's the big deal? I don't know. Have you ever just kind of gone, you know, that was a really bad month. You know, we had a really bad day. Sometimes, though, you look back and you go, that was a really bad month. I mean, that month was bad. I didn't walk with the Lord. I wasn't reading. I wasn't praying. I did some pretty carnal things I'm not too proud of. And, you know, the enemy was just getting the best of me and this and that. And, and, and how often it must have been to say, Lord, it's a new month. And, and so, Lord, I'm just, I'm dedicating myself to you this month. I just, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm recommitting afresh. This month, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it back on the altar before you again. And this must have just been, a, again, a very beautiful thing for them to be able to experience. Now, as we come to verse 16, down really through the remainder of chapter 29, we're then beginning to look at what were the annual festivals or annual feasts, the holidays or week-long celebrations. Again, we looked at these same things back in Leviticus chapter 23. These were annual occasions that were on the calendar of God's people where they either for a festival holiday or for an entire week-long celebration would have these times of worship where they would just spend time in God's presence. They would gather with God's people sometimes, like I said, for an entire week, the, you know, the whole feast long. And these uh, festivals or feast days, whether Pentecost or Passover or Tabernacles, they were used not only as times of worship, but they also were memory aids. Because as they would celebrate particular feasts, they would be recalling in their minds the acts of God from the past. They would be reflecting and remembering what God had done for them to encourage their hearts afresh of God's love, to be reminded of God's deliverance or God's faithfulness or what God had accomplished for them to strengthen their hearts. Listen, if God's done that for us, he hasn't changed. He'll do it again. He'll continue to be faithful. He'll continue to love us. He delivered us out of Egypt. So they were memory aids and they became teaching tools as well for the entire family because like tabernacles, they'd live outdoor in the booze and the families, Dad, why are we living outside in this you know, lean-to hut thing? And they became occasions for reflection and instruction. So these feasts and festivals were times to be instructed regarding spiritual things. And thirdly, they were very simply, if you could just say this, they were annual schedule appointments to spend time with God. And I like this, daily, weekly, monthly, and even about seven or so times during the course of a year, God said, look, I want you to put these on your calendar these are appointed times. God says, I want you to put on your calendar these festivals, these feasts, and they were times when they would cease from work. I mean, it's not a bad system. I'm thinking, eh, you know, that, a whole week long, just nobody work, everybody in the country just worship God, eat together, hang out, and spend time with family. I mean, this is not a bad deal. But, but as I look at this, here's what it reminds me. It reminds me of this reality that in a sense... The people ordered their lives and they ordered their schedule around God. That's so, in many ways, tragically opposite of the way so many people live. God said to them daily, weekly, monthly, and these seven or so appointments during the year, schedule me in, put me on your day timer. 
That's the schedule. Time is for you and I, for you to spend time with me, to worship me, to enjoy my presence, to learn more things about me, to be with my people, to be encouraged spiritually. And they built their lives around serving God. So many times in today's culture, it seems we're doing the opposite. Instead of building our lives around God first, we just fit God in where we can in our life. We build our life and our, you know, our, our careers and our activities and baseball and basketball and music lessons and dance class and this and that and hobbies and, 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 all we, and we live this crazy life and we build our life around ourselves and all of our wants and our children's wishes and whims and all the, and, and then we just fit God in when we can fit Him in. And if, and if it fits our schedule to have a devotional time, we'll have a devotional time. If it fits our schedule to go to church, then we'll go to church when it fits our schedule. If it doesn't conflict with the soccer schedule, or I mean, really, that's how we live in many ways, even as professing Christians. And here I see God setting a totally different paradigm saying, no, how about you build your whole life around me and then fit other things in? Again, God didn't tell them, don't work, be lazy, irresponsible. Okay, that's, that's not this. These people worked hard. This is an agricultural society. I'm not advocating, don't work a job and just pray six days a week and read your Bible. Six. Look, that's not what I'm trying to say. But God was saying, look, the centrality of life should be built all around me. Build it all around me. Don't just fit me into your schedule that you create. God gave them a very different paradigm and it was for their spiritual benefit. Well, let's look at a few of these things before we conclude this evening. The first annual festival they celebrated, verse 16, on the 14th day of the first month was Passover, the Passover of the Lord. And remember, Passover was that celebration, the 14th day of the first month, that is the religious month, the month of Abib or, or Nisan as it's known now, where they would remember and celebrate God's deliverance out of Egypt and how, remember, the uh, wrath of God passed over their lives as a result of the blood being applied to the doorposts and their lentils of the innocent lamb that was sacrificed on their behalf and how God's wrath passed over them. And that was a part of God's deliverance out of bondage, out of slavery, and a salvation or deliverance experience. And God instituted the Passover sacrifice. It's just mentioned here. We have much description of it in Exodus 12 and other places. But it was something that God wanted them to continuously, annually commemorate and remember God's salvation. God's deliverance, what God had done for them. Paul ultimately says in Corinthians that Christ is our Passover. Remember, when uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus became that ultimate sacrifice. It didn't have to be repeated as it did for them annually because Christ once for all took away as that perfect Passover lamb, the sin of the world. Verse 17, then on the 15th day of this month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So notice, 14th day, Passover begins, and then on the 15th day, the very next day, the feast, the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated for seven days. The Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrated how, as a part of that whole Passover deliverance experience, remember, God told them not to put leaven in their bread, because they would be going out quickly and they didn't have time for the bread to rise as a result of putting the yeast in there. And because they were to depart quickly and there was no time, 
God told them to take unleavened bread. And that's why many times in the New Testament, you'll notice it seems like that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are almost referred to as the same thing because in a sense, Passover marked the beginning of then what went forward with unleavened bread the next seven days afterwards as a week-long feast. But it was a reminder of how there was no time for the bread to rise because they were departing and being delivered. And I think it's a reminder, again, leaven in the Bible is a picture and a type of sin. And therefore, once we experience the Passover, the salvation, the deliverance of Jesus, not only is sin eradicated from our life positionally, where God removes our sin and cleanses us of our sin, but there's also then to be an, an inspiration in the heart and the life of a Christian responsibly to say, you know what? There's not time to be indulging in sin. I don't have time to be flirting around with sin. I have experienced the salvation of God that is so incredible, so miraculous, so powerful that, listen, I think when somebody's experienced the Passover salvation deliverance of Jesus, there's something that naturally inspires you to say, look, I don't have time to sin anymore. I am grateful and appreciative for what bondage I just spent years in Egypt under the bondage and the taskmaster, and, and I am so sick of that. And that there's that haste within the heart of a believer of I've been cleansed from sin. I don't want to go putting leaven back into my life again. I want to live for Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. And this was something that they were to celebrate as they enjoyed that time. Well, one other feast is mentioned over in verse 26, and that's the Feast of Weeks, or often what we refer to as well as the Feast of Pentecost. And that was something that they would celebrate then 50 days after the beginning of the new year, that's where the word Pentecost comes from, 50. And 50 days afterwards, they would celebrate another holy convocation. This was a week-long feast. Notice verse 26, you shall do no customary work. Again, they presented a burnt offering, which was a seed aroma. The other animals are described there. And for a week, they would celebrate this reality of the first fruits, the first in gathering, if you would, of the harvest that was yet to come ahead. And of course, Pentecost is fulfilled ultimately from a New Testament perspective we see in Acts chapter 2. Whereas the result of Jesus' death and resurrection, the first fruits of his life coming back from the dead, that then Jesus, it says on Pentecost, after ascending back into heaven, pours out the Spirit of God in the church, experiences its birth there at Pentecost, interesting at that very same time. So uh, read ahead next week. We'll pick up there.